and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. So, this week I am traveling, so I am recording from a hotel room, so I hope the audio quality is as close to normal as possible, but if it's a little bit different or you hear some weird noises in the background, that is why. (laughs) You sound really good on my Skype headphones, so, like, (laughs) you're good. (laughs) Excellent. That's so awesome. And here's another little tidbit. So Kelsey and I are actually only about like maybe an hour to an hour and a half away by car. (laughs) Yeah, actually, it should only be like a 45 minute drive. But because Ah. this is Silicon Valley, it doesn't matter what like, that would be like a 45 minute drive in the middle of the night. Actually, no, they're doing road construction. So actually, it would be a 45 minute drive, like at 7am in the morning on a Saturday. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. And because of the mics that we have, honestly, recording in the same room is way more difficult to edit because (laughs) if we ever talk over each other, then there's like a little bit of an echo if you don't have the tracks lined up. So anyhow, this is hopefully going to give us the best quality that we can get. And Finally, one last excuse, which is that we're recording in the morning for the first time. We've never done this. Yeah, that's because I'm not a morning person. Yeah, I feel like I've definitely (laughs) got a little bit of a raspy morning voice going on, but hey. I had to make myself a giant cup of tea before I started. I'm drinking terrible hotel coffee, but you know, it's better than no coffee at all. So fair, fair. I will take any caffeine over no caffeine. So true. Oh man, Zoe, it's pumpkin spice season, by the way. <laughs> I I have heard and have seen that all over the instouche, but uh, <laughs> I'm not really a pumpkin spice latte kind of girl. You know what? That's fine. You know what they have at Starbucks now, which is actually my new favorite thing. What's that? It's a pumpkin cream cold brew. So it's just plain cold brew with like slightly pumpkin spicy like cream on top that soaks into it. Oh. And it's like you still get all the joy of pumpkin spice, but it's not quite as like milky or latte. It makes me almost want to go to Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) I just got a gift card. So like I was like, hey, look, I can go to Starbucks and I'm not spending my money. (laughs) Nice. That's the best, in my opinion, kind of Starbucks is free Starbucks. But I'm going to get off my high horse here and ask you a question before we jump into the book this week. All right, let's do it. So, Kelsey, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? And of course, in this scenario, you're rich too, so you can do whatever you want with your days. And I definitely need to hear about it. Um, I would honestly want to like travel the world. Okay. But I feel like I would just want to end up in Europe. I don't know which country in Europe. But I would probably end up in Europe. That sounds perfect. I will be there with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I would also travel the world. I think I'd end up in Austria. Mm. You've traveled in Europe more extensively than I have, which is why I'm saying I don't know where I would end up in Europe, simply because, like, I've really only been to, like, two countries, so. Totally fair, but you're about to go to a third, right? I am about to go to a third. I'm very excited for that. So you're going to Spain for your honeymoon, right? I know. I am going to Spain for my honeymoon, and I'm so excited. I've only wanted to go to Spain for, like, ever. Ooh. So. What are you the most excited about? Food. Yep, makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Food and art. 
there you go. That's all I need. Yeah. And and if I had unlimited money, I would I would have a few, you know, homes. I'd have a chateau here and a castle there mm-hmm. and a farm somewhere else. And I would just travel the world and have a lot of horses. And exactly. Exactly. Travel Which is with- also why you want to be in Europe. That's where half the competition season is. <laughs> Yeah, Kelsey and I are both horse girls, if anybody uh, hasn't figured that out yet. I actually think you probably didn't, because I don't think we've talked about it. We've been keeping that real (laughs) low-key. But yeah, lots of horses, lots of lovely homes, and lots of travel. We're on the same page. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's why we love to escape into these books so much, is because it gives you a lot of those aspects, huh? It does, absolutely. So the book we're talking about today is our first novella. Yay! And it is The Governess Affair by Courtney Milan. And Kelsey, you have not read this before, correct? No, I have not. I've read a couple of Courtney Milan books. I don't know why. I think I've read just like a couple of her series, but I have not read her as extensively as I thought. I think it's just one of those authors that I really like their book, but then I would like want to go back to it and then never remember because I'm really notorious for forgetting what I just read. Uh, I think we've already cleared up that that is a common romance reader problem. (laughs) But yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people that are like, I remember every single book and every single heroine, but uh, you and I are both really fast readers. I'm sure that doesn't help us out. No, it doesn't. So... I have already mentioned that this is my favorite series. So this book is 0.5, and Courtney Milan wrote this book after she wrote the series, I believe. I don't know if she wrote it before the fifth novella, the fifth book, which is the novella, or if she wrote it afterwards, but this is 0.5. So this book is a prequel to the whole series, which is interesting and exciting. But before we get a little bit farther into it, I want to give a quick trigger warning. This book does discuss rape. So if that is something that you're very sensitive to, please bear that in mind as we continue forward. Yes. So this week, as we're diving into a new author, I wanted to give some author facts. So from Courtney's website, first of all, she's got a great website. She's got a great blog. She writes really funny blog entries. I do recommend taking a look at that if you like her. It's kind of like another snippet of her writing. She's real active on Twitter too. Cool. Yeah. She just, she's got a cool personality that I really feel like I see through her other media. So before she started writing historical romance, Courtney Milan got a degree in theoretical physical chemistry from UC Berkeley. So a pretty smart lady here. Yeah. And then after that, she writes, just to shake things up, she went to law school at the University of Michigan and graduated summa cum laude. Then she did a handful of clerkships with some really important people who are way too dignified to be named here, she writes. But actually, she clerked at the Supreme Court. (laughs) she's not an overachiever in any way shape or form no and then she was also a law professor for a while so you know so there are so many wonderful things about her like other little tidbits that i'd love to share as we continue through her novels throughout the podcast but something recently came up that i would actually like to bring to light so in february Courtney Milan was made aware that someone had plagiarized her book blatantly, non-arguably. She wrote a few beautiful and raw blog posts about it. I, again, really recommend that we as readers take a look at it because it 
it really does kind of open your eyes. And I'm going to read a little part of it. But the author that plagiarized Court Milan is her first name was Chris. And so they started this hashtag called copy paste Chris because Courtney Milan was not the only author affected by this. And Courtney wrote also how we as readers and other authors that are affected by it can help out and can can kind of remedy this. So I'm going to read a snippet of the post, and then we're going to post a link to this in our link tree on our social media, and also, of course, on our blog. So Courtney writes, I'm cutting in here after she has literally done, I think, about five to ten sections of her book versus the other author's book where it's word for word the same thing. And so she's she's highlighted that on her blog, so you can see that. And it's it's actually pretty heartbreaking. And the plagiarism that she is highlighting is from the first book in the Brother Sinister series. So it would be the next book after this novella called The Duchess War. But I'm breaking in here where she writes, okay, that's all the comparison I can handle doing at this point. Let's be frank. This sucks. It sucks that someone took my hard work for their own. I wrote The Duchess War in the midst of a massive depressive spell, and I bled for every word that I put on the page. It was a hard book to write, and it's not yours to take. For someone to take that emotion and just shove it into this nonsensical bullshit, it hurts. It also sucks that this is going to take time I didn't have away from everything that I'm doing. But you know what? Christiane Saruya has to be the biggest idiot out there. I've sold several hundred thousands of copies of this book. I've given away several hundred thousand copies on top of that. Does she think that readers are never going to notice her blatant plagiarism? And then there's the fact it's me. Look, I'm not special in any other way, and I don't want to toot my own horn too much. But if I were an unethical plagiarist and I was looking to plagiarize a romance author... I would pick literally anyone except the one who clerked for the Supreme Court, taught intellectual property as a law professor, and doesn't back down from a fight. You follow me on Twitter, Christian. How stupid can you get? Hoo-wee. Yeah, dang. I love it. Scalding. I do too. And I feel like you you feel this passion that Courtney even puts in her personal writing here on the page of her books. So she goes on to list what she expects the author to do, which is take down the book immediately, everywhere, write a public apology, and not spend any of the money she made on the book. And then she goes on to finish with this. She says, here's the deal, other authors. We're almost certainly going to find out that I'm not the only one she's plagiarized. I'm not 100% certain exactly how to proceed, but I have this here copyright registration certificate in my hands, and it's dated before her infringement. If it turns out you're similarly saturated, please let me know. So maybe you don't love Courtney Milan, but the list of authors that have been affected by this goes way beyond her. It includes Cressley Cole, Gina Showalter, Michelle Pillows, Tessa Dare, Loretta Chase, Michelle St. James, Victoria Alexander, Bella Andre, Lynn Graham, and there are probably many more. Damn, that's a list. Yeah, and I just think it's important that these things are known, right? These works that we read in the space of mere hours are the heart and soul of these authors. So sometimes they get to mean something to us, but they always mean something to them. So I just want to encourage all of us to take a moment out of our days to do our part and file a complaint against this person to help the authors who so often help us through their characters, their worlds, and their words. So Courtney Milan has outlined how we can help, and we will make sure that you can find her instructions. Awesome. Well, Good for her for noticing it and speaking out and encouraging others to speak out as well. Yeah. And I know it's been a few months since this happened. It's not so raw and fresh, but I still think whenever we can talk about things like this, we need to make it known. 
So let's get back to our book for today. Our main tropes of this, I kind of had a hard time like identifying the tropes, but I would say it's like saved from scandal. Like yeah. he's trying to rescue her by marrying her. He's also saying like a marriage without love. Mm-hmm. There's a secret pain. Hugo, our hero here, has a secret pain. And then, of course, Serena, our heroine, is kind of recovering from her rape, which often is, you know, the arc that the hero and heroine goes through is coming back from something so terrible. And then at another point in the book, Hugo says something about their attraction being inconvenient. So I put that as a trope, an inconvenient attraction. <laughs> I would say I would say another trope is the villain is very much an entitled nobleman. Like he's the antagonist and he can't see what he's done wrong because he's just like too high and mighty. Yeah. And speaking of that, I think this is the first book we've read in the podcast so far that is no noble people. Is this correct? Um, like neither of them is is noble. Yeah. So our main characters are, we've already said it, but Hugo Marshall and Serena Barton. So Kelsey, shall we get into this plot? We shall. We open up on Hugo, who works for the Duke of Claremont, and he isn't really a servant. He's kind of made a deal with the Duke to help him out and balance the books, and he has gained a reputation of being the Wolf of Claremont. So he's kind of waiting to get the Duke through the end of the year so he can win a bet and get 500 pounds, from which he's planning to do his own investing and kind of start his own empire. We learn that Hugo is one of 16 children, which, oh my God, his poor mother. <laughs> and, and we learn later uh, his poor mother in many more ways than one. Yes. And we find out that the, the Duke's finances are tied up in his recent wife, who's came from a fortune. and But the stipulation from his father-in-law is that the new duchess must be kept happy. Otherwise, he won't get his installments of the dowry. So the dowry didn't come in one lump sum. It's kind of eked out in installments. So the duke can't spend it all immediately. And then the father-in-law can kind of keep it back if he doesn't think that his daughter is happy. And she's not happy. In fact, she has decamped four months previously. <laughs> yes. So the yeah. wife is gone and the Duke is a bit desperate for his money and Hugo has to make it all better. And I, I just have to say this about the Duke. I just need to really convey this about him. He's so arrogantly a Duke because he's like, why would she mind a mistress? Like, that doesn't make sense, you know? Ugh. And it's like, Maybe you should just have loyalty in your marriage, at least for like a little bit of time, but he just can't see it. Yeah, he's he's not only arrogant, he's kind of a doofus. Like he's just never yeah. had to think of anything other than himself for even a moment of his life. So enter Serena, who is waiting outside the Duke's townhouse and the Duke you know, needs to go patch things up with his wife so that way he can have money coming back in. And then he tells Hugo that he needs to just take care of this woman sitting on the bench because she's a servant who needs to be basically paid off because she was told that she was going to have a job as a governess and there's no baby for her to take care of and she's demanding her money. So she just needs to be paid off and so she can leave and Hugo's like, fine, I'll get rid of her. Because that's what he does. Mm -hmm. So Serena is just sitting outside the Duke's townhome on a bench in the square. And she's sitting there when the Duke is telling Hugo all of these things that, you know, Hugo needs to fix it and get this lady gone. So the Duke goes on his merry way and we find out a little bit more about Serena from her perspective. So 
Three months previously, she had been weak when the Duke found her, she tells us as the reader, but now she's done being weak. So she had spoken to the Duke this morning, and she met his gaze steadily, and when Hugo comes out to approach her, she tells herself that this man will be no different. She will meet his gaze. She will be strong. So I think this is interesting, because when she first sees him, he there's like this long description of him. It's really great. But he basically looks distinctly average. His looks are familiar, middling, safe. But Serena does not let her guard down. No. And he introduces himself very nonchalantly and just like, you know, drops his name, thinking that she's going to know his name, but she doesn't. Mm-hmm. So they kind of chit chat and she kind of supposes he's here to just get the gossip because she's sitting outside the Duke's house and just waiting. And that's kind of been her plan is to be a nuisance, but not like in a upfront manner. But she's just going to sit there until gossip starts to happen because she knows gossip can really hurt the Duke. Mm-hmm. And especially if that gossip gets back to the Duke's decamped wife yes. about the lady who just keeps sitting outside the Duke's home. So Hugo does admit, you know, he what he heard, uh, which is a bit of a fib. He's trying to get some information out of her. So he tells her that he heard she was Claremont's former mistress and that he had promised her a position as governess for his unborn child. And when he reneged, she took to sitting out here to shame Claremont for not honoring his contracts. And the quote from the book is, that was so absurd, she couldn't stop herself from laughing. So... Obviously, this is what Hugo's been told, but it is certainly not the situation as Serena knows it. No, and Hugo is also pretty, he's pretty sharp. He knows the Duke's keeping something back from him. Mm -hmm. He knows that that's not the whole story. And so he's really trying to slyly get some more information out of her, like poke and prod. Specifically, after, you know, they've talked for a second, he's kind of thinking that maybe Claremont forced himself on her and... So he wants to know because he doesn't he doesn't condone that. And he's like, you need to tell me that. But she's like, no, he didn't force himself on me. Yeah, I'm not sure that she even says in the negative, but she doesn't say in the positive or the affirmative. And Hugo says that he like he's not going to believe anything until she tells him what really happened. But Mm -hmm. but like you said earlier, the Duke basically had threatened Serena to stay quiet. So like the badass she is, she told him she would do that. Silence. Accusing silence by sitting Mm -hmm. outside his house for weeks so she doesn't say anything, even though Hugo tries to coax her and, like, surely Serena doesn't think the Duke would press charges on her for her talking to him. (laughs) And uh, Serena's like, yeah, no, the Duke wouldn't, but, you know, his dog, the Wolf of Claremont, surely would. (laughs) So, whoops, (laughs) we've got a mistaken identity here. (laughs) And Hugo kind of lets that go for now. He's like, I'm not going to tell her. I'm going to let this sit to my own advantage. So they part ways at that point after Serena gives a great description of what she thinks the wolf of of Claremont looks like. She says he's a former uh, pugilist. How do you say that? Pugliest. Pugliest. Excellent. A former pugliest who is utterly ruthless, short, stocky, and possessed of absolutely no neck. So yeah, so then they part ways where Hugo bids her good luck, but warns her that she has probably made the wolf's chase interesting. 
Yes. And so then after this conversation, Serena stays until nightfall and then goes home where we find out she's staying with her sister, Frederica, who she affectionately calls Freddie, even though Freddie detests that. So they live in a house that's, you know, Freddie keeps it as nice as possible, but she believes in like their station shouldn't work. So she lives off the meager funds that are given to her. Serena had opted to give Freddie all the funds that were given in their parents' death, so that way Freddie could live her life of, you know, genteel poverty. And so Freddie, any extra income she has goes to her craft projects, which then go to charity. So she makes quilts and knits socks and gives those to charity because that's what ladies did. And Serena had opted to go be a governess elsewhere. Yeah, and Freddie is a really interesting character who, I will say, does appear later in the series. And Freddie is leaving the house less and less these days. So she really has a hard time with change. And the quote is, Freddie didn't handle change well, and nothing changed so often as the world outside the door. So she is increasingly homebound. And she's also described as a pale redhead. So I, that's that's important for Again, later books. <laughs> but they really do have a, a loving but strained relationship because they're so different. Freddie is afraid of the world and Serena is trying to take it on. And Freddie kind of sees her sister as someone who needs to be taken care of versus Serena sees Freddie as someone who needs to be taken care of. So they both kind of fight to be the sisters who takes care of the other. And we learn through their conversation that Serena is, quote, left with nightmares and a baby on the way. So we do now know that Serena is pregnant. Yes. And so the next day, Serena is back on the bench and Hugo is watching from his office in the Duke's house. He's really introspective at this point because he doesn't know why he didn't correct her on her assumptions about the wolf. He really... Like, his character is that he doesn't like lying, not even by implication. No, he has this whole list of things he doesn't do. Like, he doesn't swear, he doesn't drink, he doesn't hurt women, he doesn't lie. Like, these are all his, like, staunch things that he doesn't do. But when he goes down to chat with Serena that day, he does admit to being completely without morals. And she doesn't believe him because his face is, like, too too gentle and too nice and too safe looking. Yes. And that's something Serena kind of comments through the whole thing is like for her, Hugo just like screams safety to her. Like that's everything in his being. So she can't really, he doesn't, he's so non-threatening to her, even when he says he's going to threaten her. (laughs) Yeah. So their conversation continues on the bench and Hugo admits he's distracted by Serena. And in his remark, she does notice a small spark of attraction from him and immediately her demeanor changes and she just says, go away. And it's that moment that Hugo realizes that Clermont has a great deal to pay for. Yes, he definitely gets his suspicions based on when she notices that spark of attraction. And it's very cute. They're sitting on the bench talking the second time and he puts a little twig in between them and he's like, that's a wall and I won't cross it. Yeah, and that's where we get this great quote about, I do a great many things I'm not proud of and I'm not proud of many of them, but I don't swear, I don't drink and I don't hurt women. I don't do any of those things because my father did every one. So, whoo Yeah. So they kind of 
go back and forth. And Hugo is telling Serena who he is by explaining how he got his ruthless reputation and nickname. So Serena now knows he's the wolf. And he explains, though, that it is much harder to ruin someone than to help them. So what is it that she wants? And he's really giving her chances to open up to him. He's like, you can really tell me anything. Like, I don't gossip. I don't tell people stories. Like, anything you say to me will be safe. But I would rather help you than hurt you in any way. But Serena wants too much because she wants the Duke to pay with recognition for him to speak of it, to feel one-tenth of the censure that she has. But that's not going to happen. So she hands the twig back to him and says, do your worst. That is what you're known for, is it not? Woo-wee! Girl. (laughs) She is one to throw down the gauntlet. I love it. I love her. Okay, sorry. Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the next day, Hugo's hired people to sit on Serena's bench. (laughs) So she walks for about half an hour before she realizes that they aren't leaving. And she stands defiantly all day and arrives an hour earlier the next day. But of course, Hugo has anticipated this. And she stands again for nine straight hours. So he's kind of realizing she she's not going to be deterred easily. Uh-uh. And especially on the third day where it rains and she just stands under a tree. And eventually, like, her umbrella isn't umbrellaing anymore. Yeah. And her clothes are soaked through. And eventually... He leaves the house and shoes the people who were sitting on the bench away because they were in Macintoshes. You know, they were ready to take on the wet weather because he had outfitted them appropriately. But he comes out with a blanket and tea and a sandwich. And she's like, I thought I thought we were arguing. I thought we were fighting. And he's like, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So they chat about his story and his purpose. And she learns a little bit more about what he is driving him. And he explains he doesn't hurt women. And the circumstances of her being out in the rain and cold seem to be hurting her, which is why he kind of decided to bring her tea. So they eat tea and sandwiches in the rain. And then Hugo gives her an offer. Mm-hmm. 50 pounds and a reference for her to leave. Yeah. Yeah, Serena's not really into it. There's a couple of things that are tough for her. One, there is a spark of attraction between the two of them. And two, it's not enough for her, for what's happened to her. So she says, that's all you want with me to convince me to leave? And Hugo says, no, but what I want with you is neither here nor there. I need you to go away. So go away, you shall. So then after this, Hugo asks once again if the Duke forced her and Serena finally replies with a no, but inside she caveats it with, I let him do it. Yikes. But because she said no, Hugo says, okay, then it's 50 pounds and a reference and not one iota of revenge. And kind of revenge is what she's mainly going for. Not like, well, yeah, revenge is kind of what she's going for. So, but if he doesn't think that it's revenge for any good reason, essentially, like if she was complicit in the affair... Yeah. Then she can't have her revenge if she was complicit. Yeah. So, but he's sent out spies. So he finds out the next day that Serena had worked at Wolverton Hall and then she was sacked for immoral behavior when they saw a man leaving her room and they found her sheets had blood on them and it wasn't her time. So basically not uh, only like, so she, yeah, so this is a not great situation and she was virginal before it happened. 
And I'm groaning not for the virginal stuff. It's like, oh, can you imagine, though, how awful that is? It's like these women had no power, no power at all. And they were just, you know, villainized by everyone around them and just basically just torn down. Like they I can I just can see her standing in the hallway and like all of the people gathering around while some stupid man went into her room and looked at her sheets and then had to talk to and say, like, is it your time? Oh, it's just. Yeah, no, all of it was just awful and then to just even think about she was a servant and a servant was essentially property like yes they paid you so it wasn't slavery but it was slavery like you were treated like trash and so she was essentially like you're you're trash and now look what's like you have no right to any of this isn't your room it's our room that we give you so we can come in anytime we want and yeah it's yeah just awful so knowing this fact though hugo starts to feel like the villain in this situation Now he knows she was a virgin and he says that there's degrees of force and he decides, you know, he knows he could just squash her by spreading this rumor in London that she is without morals. He could absolutely slay her, but he decides not to do it that way. But it is time to finish this. So... He even feels like he has the utmost admiration for her and wishes he could woo her and make her his own. But like he's got his own dark things and doesn't feel like that would fill the abyss inside him. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, he so he lets it go. But even though he's starting to feel like a villain, he is pretty ruthless because she comes back from an uneventful day of standing because now it's not raining. So she's back to standing and the house is awfully quiet, and she finds Freddie rocking and shaking, and Freddie just hands Serena a letter that basically says they need to vacate the house immediately. Like, they've got two days. Yeah. Because the landlord has spoken to the Wolf of Claremont. (laughs) Yeah, and so just brief diversion here, where we actually learn the source of Freddie's fear. I You know, we don't need to get too into it, but basically she saw her mother murdered beside her in a carriage by a highwayman. So I think that gives a little context to why Freddie is so afraid of the outside world. Something really terrible happened to her, which is why, you know, the less and less she goes out there, the more and more scared she is. But this letter drives Serena back out the door and back to Claremont's house. And she's banging on the door and the door finally opens. Yes, and the butler informs her that Mr. Marshall is not available, but has been informed to give her these things, which is a piece of paper and a pencil. So she reads the paper, and it's a letter, and then she... This is just such a darling scene. It's it's really, it really is. So basically, he's like, the letter's just like, your sister's gonna get tossed out, or the original offer still stands. Like... Yeah, to, it was the work of a moment, you know, yada, 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 okay, etc. Yeah. Here's another monetary threat that I could do to you. Just take the offer, Serena. Yeah, so. and so she's just like, <laughs> she immediately like angry scribbles on this piece of paper and she's like, here you go. And then there's like this back and forth lettering that happens. In one of the letters, she shoots back that she can handle poverty. Did he know that these ingredients make a delicious poverty lemonade? And... The reply for that one takes a little longer because he admits she tricked him into trying it and it was repulsive. Bravo to her. (laughs) And in that letter, he requests that she stop pacing frantically, please. It must be bad for her (laughs) And so it's really cute because he's kind of watching and they're going back and forth and 
this is where the attraction really starts to build because she's just not backing down. And he even admits that he's found someone who is his equal in the sense that she has a cunning mind and she won't back down and she's just as ruthless as he can be. So this back and forth is happening. She replies to his comment to stop pacing that she has something for him. So then she watches the window and sees him appear and then she throws up a rude gesture. (laughs) And that's when, after that, she gets a real quick reply with just two words. And he says, marry me. Ah, it's so cute. (laughs) It's so cute. But she doesn't take it that way. No. Like, she she doesn't want to be cowed or vulnerable. And, like, for her, that's what marriage is. And... Her reply to that... Her reply was, I was wondering when you would start threatening me with fates worse than death. Congrats, Mr. Marshall. I am officially frightened. Whoo-wee. So their letters stop at that point, and at the end of the day, Hugo's leaving his office, and he is in a jolly mood because Serena besting him in wit basically three times that day has just made him feel chipper for whatever reason. And even though it's dark, he realizes with a start that Serena is still on the bench. So he walks over to her, and she comes up to him and tries to punch him. And he's a former pugliest, and so he, instead of getting mad at her, gives her a lesson and tells her to slap a man in the face first so he doesn't see the knee to the groin coming, (laughs) (laughs) which I really do. I really do like that. Yes, but Serena's been there all day and waiting for him to leave because she feels the need to explain Freddie's fear to him because him striking out at her sister is unfair. Like, you can't toss her out. Like, this is, her life is there, and she may not live if she has to leave. Yeah, and he apologizes before he even realizes what he's doing, because he's not one to apologize for his behavior, but he just does. And then the conversation turns back to the proposal, and Serena's not going to let him intimidate her. And, And Hugo here admits that, like, he doesn't intend to marry, and the words were simply, quote, the frankest expression of admiration for a worthy opponent. And Serena's like, yeah, figure out another way to do that. (laughs) But then he hands her his walking stick and tells her he's walking her home. And this is her weapon. So if he crosses a line, she can hit him with it. (laughs) And she asks why he's going to walk her home. And he says, you know why. We're attracted to one another and it's inconvenient. So they banter and they walk home. And eventually in that moment in the banter, they have a pause moment. And she turns to him and she drops the walking stick as they stare at each other. And then they kiss. And it's cute and beautiful. But then he finds out she's pregnant. Yeah. And (laughs) his reaction is pretty great. So he stops when he feels her belly. And he says, she has neglected to tell him two things. The first thing is that that was her first kiss, was it not? She had said that the Duke didn't force her. And the second thing is, in all their discussions, was it not relevant to mention that she was pregnant? Yeah, so those are two very big things. So now he's essentially confirmed that she was forced and that she he knows she's pregnant. And she's like, well, I told the Duke. I told him when I came by. Yeah, so she really was honestly thought that Hugo would know. And Hugo wants to know what sort of promises that Claremont had made to get her in bed. And Serena says that he, quote, promised not to wake the whole household. Oof, because at this point in time, she also says she wasn't forced because she didn't fight him. She didn't want to lose her job, so she stayed quiet. And whoo that's a tough one. 
Yeah, and Hugo is now infuriated with Claremont, and rape is bad enough. Like, he couldn't condone rape, but in his mind, what Claremont has done in this whole situation is even worse than that. Yeah. So he's just, like, furious at Claremont, and he's now going to sit and think about all that she wants and how to get that for her. So what she does want is enough money to buy a lavender farm to make soaps and provide for her child. And she wants this child to go to Eton or to have a season. And Hugo doesn't think that some of that isn't very likely, but he says that they will talk the next morning at 11 with no threats. So they do. And... While he says that they cannot provide Eaton or a season, her sister can stay in her home and they will give Serena a hundred pounds. And Serena knows she should take it, but she just feels like it isn't enough. But Hugo says there is something else. He knows she doesn't want her child to be known as a bastard. And does she have any plans to marry at present? Because he is still waiting for an answer to his proposal. Yeah, so Serena like balks. She knows she's like, you didn't mean that. And then Hugo keeps going and says, well, it needn't be a true marriage. We don't have to consummate it. I'm not offering you a life with me, but, you know, respectability and legitimacy. (laughs) And her reply is, oh, but you are romantic. (laughs) Yes. But he shows her that he spent all night looking at farms for her. And so he says, I've looked at some suitable options. I su- but he doesn't just give her a farm. He's like, I assume you want to look these over, yeah. but I've taken the liberty of starting to look. Mm-hmm. But think about it this way. Marriage to me, while isn't what either of us intended, it's going to give your child a better quality of life than they would have otherwise. Yeah. And he keeps babbling and Serena realizes she's not detecting coldness in his movements, but actually nervousness about her response. Yeah. And her hopes swell. So she realizes at this moment, and no matter how coldly he framed the prospect of their marriage, one thing was quite clear. She had won. Yeah, she had. And she agrees. After this moment when she realizes he's nervous, like he's not trying to be cold and calculating, he's just simply nervous, it confirms all those safe feelings she had about him. Mm -hmm. So she agrees to this marriage. But in this marriage, she has decided that she is now vowing to herself that she will win him from Claremont. He will no longer be the wolf of Claremont. He will be her wolf. Yeah. So they marry a week later, and then Hugo tries to deposit her back at Freddy's for her to prepare for her departure to the farm, but she stops him and says she's decided they should consummate the marriage after all. Yes. And I will say this was like a really heartbreaking moment because he's like, we don't have to do this. It's not necessary. I'm fine with this. And she's like, no, because I want a better memory than what I have. Yes. Like, I have a horrible memory. I wake up frightened at night because I've been dreaming and I want... I want you to replace that dream for me. I want you to make this a good dream, not a bad dream. So they go to his house, and when they first get there, Serena realizes how over her head she is and does kind of collapse, and they have that moment uh, talking about driving Claremont out of her mind, and Hugo is just so wonderful. So he unpins her hair slowly and tells her that he is not going to consummate the marriage. But she is. Yes. So he makes a game where she can trade a hairpin for a favor, like unlace her corset or kiss her, etc. And once he has a pin, he can trade it back for a favor, but he can only make her touch herself. So 
the pins give her back her fun and her power and her safety. And it's just a really beautiful, sweet scene. It is. I think, too, part of the power of it is even when they do consummate it, like, she's on top. Because she had Uh this feeling of being pressed into the mattress and forced. And he's like, no, we're going to do it this way because I want you to feel strong and powerful in this moment. And she did. And it's really, it's a good moment. It's a good, it's a good encounter. Yeah, it's sexy consent, which is some of the best, the best stuff. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So, of course, afterwards, Hugo, like, tries to emotionally withdraw, right? And Serena, like, tries to bring him back to her. And now is when we really get Hugo's backstory. So he had an abusive father. He was one of 16 children. His mother was an incredible woman. And since he was towards the end of the 16, I think he was 14 of the 16, Mm -hmm. she tried to keep him safe. And his father was a miner. So all his older siblings, especially older brothers, went into the mine. And his mother was just like, oh, he's too young. And then when his younger brothers passed away, she's like, oh, no, it's it's the youngest one. He, he can't go in the mine yet. And so she was really protected and encouraged him to go to school. And he says it's a good thing his mother protected him because it allowed him to go to school longer than any of his siblings. It allowed him to be a little bit more educated so he could make something of himself. But then eventually he does go into the mine, but he does it for three days. And on the third day, there is a mine shaft collapse. And so he's stuck for a bit. And they do get him out. It wasn't like a terrible disaster, but he refuses to go back in the mine. And his dad's like, you're just a coward. Like, you need to go back in. That's not happening. But his mother steps in and essentially like takes the beating from him. And Hugo runs away and finds out later that his mother died defending him. Well, she dies three weeks later from defending him. And she had always been, as you said, his supporter and... She had told him as he grew up that he could be anyone. She said he could be the richest coal miner's son in all of England. So Hugo doesn't feel that it's enough yet. He says, quote, it's not enough yet what I've managed. It's not enough to make up for leaving her. She could not have lost so much for a mere nobody. You can't stay. I won't leave. And now we both know precisely what it is we're giving up. It wasn't a good idea, but you'll be safe and you'll be well. And that will be enough. So Serena keeps hoping that Hugo's going to change his mind after they have their heart to heart, but he doesn't and she leaves. Like he puts her on the stagecoach and walks away and she goes out to the farm. And after she goes, Hugo's kind of finding he's a bit apathetic. Everything's kind of lost its flavor. So on day three, he decides to write a letter to her. But, you know, it's got to be businesslike, very businesslike, just making sure she's fine. And she writes back in a very businesslike manner, thank you very much, and yada yada. So that exchange doesn't really give him what he's looking for. So he like is meandering through the streets and then like buys a shawl for her on an impulse and writes a polite reply to her polite reply. And so Serena is tired of the game and writes back, Yeah, she writes back, Mr. Marshall, I am delighted that you are delighted, that I am delighted with my new home. Can I predict the substance of our next missive? That you are delighted, that I am delighted, that you are delighted, etc. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes him smile. And then she goes on to say that she's damnably glad that she had one night with him. And we may not be husband and wife in the truest sense, but we have been friends and we have been lovers. And I hope that we may be friends still. So he sends her the shawl. (laughs) Aww. And the days pass. So now we hear about the Duke again. He has smoothed things over with his wife. All of his investments through Hugo are doing well, and in three months, Hugo will win the wager. 
But there's a problem, and that's that Hugo's just really not that enthusiastic about that anymore. And the letters between Serena and Hugo have gotten decidedly more risque. Oh, yes. they. Serena's like, okay, I can draw you back with my words. Yes, I can. Yes. But like you said, Hugo is not really happy with his place at the Duke anymore. And then when the Duke returns and he sees the governess is gone, as he phrases it, Hugo just kind of loses it and tells the Duke to go to hell. Cursing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He curses, which he never does. And he also punches the Duke in the face. And the Duke's on like, I'm a Duke. You can't do that. And he's like, I can bury you with everything I know about you. So... After he punches him, he tells the Duke to write down what actually happened with Serena on paper and to sign it. And he says that if the Duke doesn't pay for Eaton or a season, then he knows what Hugo will do to him. Yeah. AKA, he'll bury him and ruin him just like he did to every one of the Duke's enemies. Yeah, and the Duke does it, but then he's like, you know, I'm not going to honor my wager. And Hugo's like, well, you're not going to be able to, because while I said I wouldn't tell the public about this, I didn't say I wouldn't tell your wife, so you're not going to have any money. And, oh, the wolf rears his head. And so that is what Hugo does. Yes, and he sets off to Serena by way of um, his hometown, where he visits his mother's grave and kind of puts that to bed but then he f- he goes to the farm and he sees Serena wearing the shawl. Aww. And he admits that he loves her. Yay! And he says, I thought I had to prove myself with money and accomplishments, but those will always ring hollow. They will never be enough. I want to be somebody. Let me be your husband. Let me be the father of your child, of all your children. And so he tells her about the kind of encounter with Claremont and that he hit him twice and that he blackmailed him into paying for Eaton. And he says, I never pretended to be a good man, you know. It's just that I'm yours. And Serena's response to that is that she just wants to make sure that he hit him hard. And he (laughs) did. So she says, that's my Hugo. Yay! That's so great. And then 12 years later, epilogue! Epilogue! And we meet Oliver... That's their son. Which is their son. He's got red hair like Freddie and blue eyes like the Duke of Claremont. He's at Eton and he is picked on it. And we don't actually learn it from his point of view as Oliver. We learn it from Robert, who is the Duke of Claremont's legitimate son. Who is also aged the same. So Robert sees someone picking on him, but he hears Oliver's dad is Hugo Marshall. He hears Oliver shout that as he's about to go help him because he's like a protector of the weak. He doesn't like bullying. But then when he hears the name Hugo Marshall, which in his life has always been the villain of his life because his parents would always fight. And one day he asked his dad why they were fighting. And he's like, it's Hugo Marshall's fault. So Hugo Marshall is the villain in Robert's life. So to find out that Oliver is Hugo Marshall's son is just like this dude doesn't deserve to be here. So he kind of allow he doesn't partake in the bullying, but he encourages the bullying. Yeah, he does. So for the first time in Robert's life, he's kind of becoming the the bully and the villain in a way. But eventually they are kind of put in the same space, Oliver and Robert. And so what happens is, so eventually boys were like threatening to beat up Oliver and Oliver's like, it's your fault. Like, come at me, basically. 
it hit me like you really want to. And Robert, you know, says, fine. And he goes up to Oliver and Robert is already punching, but he notices Oliver's eyes, but Oliver's taunting him. And he's like, don't you know who I am? And Oliver's like, yeah, you're my brother. And yep. it just rocks Robert's world. So he's like, punch me. So you're not going to be bullied anymore. So Oliver does. <laughs> his yeah. dad His dad knows how to throw a punch. Makes sense. He does too. And yep. from there, he and Robert make a truce. And Robert's never had a happy family. So he's hoping that Oliver can become his family. Yeah, he goes from you know, hatred to love pretty quickly. Or I would say he goes from hatred to hope pretty quickly because the idea of having a brother is just so incredible to him. So Oliver and Robert become friends as well as we see a little bit of Sebastian, who is Robert's cousin. And so they are friends at Eton and the Brothers Sinister begins. Yay! Yay! (laughs) So, um... That's the end, and there's still much to discuss, so shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. Our book recommendation today comes from listener Maisie, and her Instagram is at romance period in period the period wild (laughs) and she's hilarious and you should definitely check her out she recommends dalliances and devotion by felicia grossman the hero and heroine in this one are jewish which she points out is super lacking in all romance which when we read this both of us were like huh you're right yeah I've so I am Jewish and it's something that I've thought about like this is crazy that that's I haven't sought that out in the genre that I love that I haven't found books with Jewish heroines so I've been looking for some recommendations and I'm really excited to give some of these a try. Yes. Maisie said that there was some recent perspective that made her realize how lacking Judaism was in media unless it's satirical. So it's really great that we can all check this one out. Absolutely. And so we would love to hear from you guys uh, also with book recommendations, or maybe you guys have a question that you'd like us to answer at the beginning of the show. We'd love to hear what you guys want to know from us. And you can send us an email at romancepod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets. We're on Facebook at the same name. We're on YouTube and we're also on Twitter at the same name. (laughs) Yeah. And like we're often running contests or giveaways and putting up other super fun content on our socials. So join us there. Dude, you guys have to check out Zoe's stories on Instagram. (laughs) They're just like pure fire all the time. And like she, yeah, I'm always really impressed. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying to make it fun. So, yeah, we had one recently that was pretty good about romance novel names. Anyhow, I made it a highlight. So even if you didn't check it out when it was live, it's there for you to look at. Perfect. And you guys can always check us out on our website, which is romancepod.com. You can find episodes, more information. We have blog posts. Check us out. You can also subscribe to us on our website so you can hear all the news from us immediately. Immediately. 
And finally, of course, please rate, review, and subscribe. So reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts really help us get found. So if you do have a few extra minutes to smash that five star and leave a quick note, we would be very honored. All right, so picking this book apart. So Kelsey, what were your thoughts about this book? I was really impressed. I'm not usually a novella person. I sometimes find them lacking in some way, shape, or form, or they just happen, but they go by too quickly. And I'm like, why was this not a full novel? But I really think that Courtney Milan did a really great job with this in it had, you know, a beginning, middle, and end. It had conflict, but it still got, the conflict all got resolved. I really liked the characters. So I really think that it was well encapsulated and it told a very interesting story. The way the story went kind of wasn't how I perceived it going. Yeah. And I was really happy with the end and I really did like how it set up the whole Brothers Sinister series, which (laughs) I think I maybe have read a book of, but I can't remember. (gasps) And now I really want to read the whole thing. So I might do that before we actually talk about them on the podcast. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm excited for you because like I said, it's my favorite. I think there's a lot to love about the way she writes, but I'm going to agree with you. I think it's a pretty perfect novella. Like it doesn't feel rushed and it doesn't feel like there's big holes or gaps in it either. Like, and I think it's really interesting because this was the amount of space that this story needed. You know, it was, I feel like everything in this story was totally necessary and perfect. And there was like a thing or two here and there that we didn't address in the podcast, but those things that we didn't address were still important to later parts of the storyline that are in other books. So I think that's really cool. I also remember reading this book and just being kind of eh about it, which is like crazy because what was I thinking? This book was so good. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I just think it's so raw and witty and simple, but like complicated at the same time. I don't, I don't know. I think what she did in this book was really cool. There were four settings in this book. The bench, Freddie's apartment, his office, and his apartment. I mean, okay, we could say that they go on a walk and they also have the farm, but like those are really the main settings. And like even his apartment, it only has one scene, but it's their encounter. But like really so much of this book takes place on the bench. And what a simple and incredible thing to do. It's just so cool. Yes, but I like, too, that it the plot was furthered and the attraction was furthered not just from, like, them being in the same room. It was they. It was minds matching, yes. which I think that was so nice about it is, you know, he was just even meeting her. And after the first encounter, he's like, this is someone who is up for the challenge, you know, for a man who kind of isn't challenged as much as he would. You know, he doesn't find people to be as challenging as they probably think they are. But she, who is so unimposing, she really is the challenge of his life. Yeah. And obviously, this book deals with a difficult subject. She was raped by the Duke. And I think that it deals with rape in a really profound way because you get a lot of different viewpoints. So you get Serena's viewpoints, you get her thoughts, you get Freddie's viewpoints and her thoughts, you get Hugo's thoughts, and you get the Duke's thoughts. But the book believes that the reader is smart enough to draw their own conclusions from the evidence. And that is why I think it like hits me so profoundly in the gut. You know, it's not 
it's not telling me how to feel. It's assuming that I am smart enough to realize what's going on here. And that I just really respect so much in her writing. Yes. And I think it does deal with it in a very realistic way. And so it's just interesting how you dealt with it in a way where it lets you draw your own conclusions, but you know where the conclusion is. You know, you get the other side stories, but you definitely get the like, no, this is not okay. Like, this is very bad. Like, there's no, you know, even though you get the Duke's point of view, it doesn't, it doesn't make it okay. It makes it, it's not like, it solidifies the position. It's a, yeah, exactly. It It makes it even less okay, you know. His, his justifications are so wild and you as a, as a reader can see that, you know, he says he was bored and that's why he forced Serena and you just are just left feeling so awful and gross in that moment. And that is why I think this kind of does such a better job than so many other books. Yes. I think you really put it and put the nail on the head when you said it felt very raw. Like all of it felt very raw. Like her con- her confession felt raw. Um, the Duke's confession felt raw, you know, and it made the whole situation feel even more raw and open and and Hugo's development through it, you know, he, he he's true to his nature in so many ways. And yet when he comes around to actually having all the facts, he he's able to stick to his character and make the right conclusions and do the, the right things, I think. You know, normally I'm not one to condone physical violence, but that is his character. And, yeah. you know, Serena is he, – he wasn't like beating the Duke into submission. He – he did what Serena wanted at the same time, right? He got the Duke to write it down on a piece of paper, to acknowledge it for her. And he didn't do it just by physical violence. He did it by physical violence and threats. But like, that's who he was. That's who he was established the whole book. So why would we expect anything differently of him? Yeah. And it's not that he got his just reward by him hitting the Duke. It was like he got the reward for Serena as well. For sure. He didn't forget about Serena's pain in the matter and what Serena wanted out of the matter. Because a lot of times you find, you know, our hero will take actions or he'll punch the villain or he'll go after the villain. But it's more for like their own personal satisfaction. Mm-hmm. But part of his personal satisfaction was making sure Serena would be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And we talked earlier about how, you know, Hugo felt like what the Duke did was worse. But the quote there is... Somehow, what had happened seemed even worse than physical violence, as if Clermont had not only taken his pleasure and her future, but he had robbed her of the right to believe herself blameless. And I think in, you know, these sort of situations, that is so often the case. There's that emotional trauma as well that we don't necessarily highlight. And I just think that's a beautiful sentence to highlight and Mm -hmm. bring that to the forefront. So let's get into the happy parts too. So, oh my gosh, that whole delightful scene where he finally says, marry me. Oh, Oh, that was just too cute. Because it was just such a real moment where he just was like, I couldn't have said any other thing. Like, don't be frightened by it. Like, I didn't actually mean it, but like, I did in a way. He did and he didn't. And, but her response too, like, even I, my, my, as a reader, my, you know, energy soars when he says, marry me. And it just goes higher when she refuses, because again, she is so true to her character. And it, it never feels in this book, you know, like, yeah, there are secrets, right? And we talk a lot about like, it's so nice when people have just an honest conversation and yada, yada. But 
as information is delivered in this book, it feels right. You know, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like they should have had that information years ago. It feels like they learn things as they are meant to learn them and as it drives the story forward. And it's not like we're sitting here wishing that they'd known beforehand. I mean, yes, I'm excited for the moment when Hugo figures out that Serena is actually pregnant, but I'm not thinking like, God damn it, Serena, just tell him you're pregnant, right? No. It makes sense. And then also knowing that she thought he honestly knew, it all falls together in such a beautiful way. And I was thinking about that in this book, this kind of secrets, but like all of the Brothers Sinister books are like that. Each character in that book has some secrets that don't get kind of discussed until they are meant to be discussed. They they happen when they happen. And I, I be, from my memory, it makes sense. It makes sense why these things aren't divulged in the beginning. And there's a reward in that too, right? There's a reward in the waiting and having it come when it needs to come and not yes. having it drive the plot. It's so cool. It's so cool. I love the way she writes. I will say it's nice to have a secret that is admitted when it needs to be. Because I'm all for secrets kind of driving the plot, but I don't like it when the secrets are the conflict in the plot. Yeah, for sure. Agreed. Because in a lot of books, like in a lot of the romance, the secrets become like the main conflict. Like they're conflicting because they're not talking. And yet they want to have a happily ever like relationship. It's like, yeah, but you couldn't like admit basic things about yourself to this person, you know, and yet you want to have a happily ever after. That's not how it works. <laughs> but... In this where they they did talk about their secrets, but when they felt they could trust the person, you know, and Hugo even says, I've never told anyone, I've never told a soul in the world about, you know, the mine and my mother and any of it. I've never said it to any other person in the world, but he told it to her because he felt she needed to know to understand him. Yeah. And I just love, too, that there's so many tidbits that are nurtured in the other books. But, like, you learn about Freddie's affliction, her, her her being homebound. That comes back up. Freddie's got red hair, and then Oliver has red hair. So you know that's where his red hair came from in the family. Both the boys are left-handed, which is how they get their brother's sinister name. I believe Sebastian is also left-handed. It's so cute when they shake hands at the end of the book, they shake hands with their left hand because that's their left-hand dominant, which is like just so cute. That's like their own little like, okay, now we're on equal footing. Yes. And then just Oliver, Sebastian, and Robert meeting and their friendship beginning. Like they have such a cool friendship through the other books too. Like it is, it is really cool to see them as boys. So I love that epilogue. It's like such a good epilogue. And it's not even about, you know, your main characters. It's just about the boys. And it and Kelsey hasn't even read those books about those boys. And I no, you're, I was, you're no, smiling. But <laughs> you should just see Zoe's face right now. It's just <laughs> so cute. She's just so excited. You can I, hear it in her voice, but y'all should see her face. Oh my God. I am so excited. I love these books. I love all the things about them. I haven't read them in a long time. Uh, but after reading this novella, I really do feel like they're going to hold up. So shall we get on to our ratings, though? We shall. So uh, where would you rate Hugo? I will rate Hugo. I'll rate him like a solid eight. Nice. Yeah, I like his, I, you know, he's got good conflict, but he's honest. He sticks to his character. He doesn't like, everything he does is within his own character. It's not like he suddenly changes and becomes a different person. He's still the same person. He yeah. just has different goals in mind. That's all. Yeah, I I don't know. I, 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 
I don't feel as in love with Hugo as I feel like I should. I love so many of the things, the twig, the the hairpins, the, you know, his whole character of not cursing, but being this kind of um, wolf. I, I, I love all the things about him. I feel like I should rate him higher, but I also just feel like to me and my love for him is an eight. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's still solid, but I feel like I should rate him higher. So I feel bad, but I yeah. would also give him an I eight. I think it's, yeah, I would think so. I think that maybe if we'd had a full-length book of Hugo, like maybe we would rate him higher, but who knows? Maybe that would have made him rate lower. We don't know. We get more Hugo <laughs> at least in book four. I can't remember if he's in book two, but I definitely, oh, he's, we get some good Hugo in in okay. in Free's book. She uh, Her full name is Frederica, anyhow. Um, <laughs> so, um there's that. So now we get to Serena, Frederica's mother. Uh, <laughs> and what would you rate Serena? I I kind of want to rate Serena like a nine. Like, I Me really too. liked her. <laughs> Me like, too. I just like that she was really, you know, she had a bad thing happen. Like, when her parents died and they found out that they had money but not nearly enough, she was like, okay, I'm going to give my money to my sister and I'm just going to go set out and make a living. Like, that's just going to have to be my life. When the bad thing happened to her, she's like, okay, like, I'm not just going to be submissive. Like, this this is the one time I didn't fight back and now I know I need to fight back. Like, I can't just let things happen to me. Like, I need to fight for things. And so she has this conviction and she's, you know, even dealing with Hugo, she's very much She's on edge, but she doesn't let that stop her. She doesn't let herself get intimidated. She forces herself to meet him head on, even though it's hard for her. And she really sticks with it. And she sets out with a goal and she achieves all her goals. And it's nice because like, you know, she doesn't like the child that she's carrying. She's like, this is my child. I don't care. Like the father, you know, this sucked, but like this is my child and I need to protect my child. And so he, there, my child is going to have everything that they deserve. I completely agree uh, with everything that you said. I also just want to add that I think Serena is so wonderfully witty. And I do think Courtney Milan writes wonderfully witty heroines. I love uh, her dialogue and Serena has some witty zingers in there. And I also think she's a nine. I think she's strong and wonderful and you know, she stands for hours a day and she's fantastic. So yes. a nine for me. Excellent. Do you have a favorite quote you'd like to share with us? I do have a favorite quote I would like to share with us. It's not like a super significant quote, but it's one that just gave me that special feeling where yeah. I felt like it must be highlighted. So this is that she's interacting with Freddie and they're having some sister moments and Serena thinks to herself, perhaps God gave one sisters to teach one to love the inexplicable. Because Serena's realizing that Freddie sees her as someone who needs to be saved, just as Serena sees Freddie as someone who needs to be saved. And I just think it's like, I have a sister and I will say I, you know, I became a patient person because I had to deal with my sister my whole life. (laughs) And I love her to death, even if she argues with me about stupid things. (laughs) Well, sisters are great, great and terrible at the same time. No, I'm kidding. Um, Yeah, no, I get that feeling. And that's a cool quote to pull out. So my quote is also Serena. And this is during one of their exchanges. Oh, man, I love this quote. And Serena says, no, Mr. Marshall, I will not be browbeaten, however nicely you do it. 
I am done with things happening to me. From here on out, I am going to happen to things. That was a good line. I almost highlighted that one. That was a good one. I like that one. I love that. She's so... She's so determined to change her life around, and I totally respect that. So, our steaminess and encounter counter. Mm-hmm. There was one encounter, and it was hot, sexy consent, right? <laughs> it really was. It was, I, I really enjoyed that. That was good. Yeah. I would rate this, like, a nice cup of, like, nostalgic tea, you know, like the tea that you had that one time in that one place that every time you drink that tea, it makes you think of that. And like, it, it hits you in like a way of feeling and remembrance that's a little bit deeper than just the flavor of the tea. But like, yeah, I get that. For me, I think it's like a nice, like it's a, it's a piping hot. It's not like a, it's not like scalding hot you know, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's hot. And it's one of those for me, it's a cup of tea that like, for I get cravings, like I have to have this tea right now, because that's Ooh. all I want right now, you know. And so I think it's just a nice cup. It's like a nice steamy cup of that tea that you've been thinking about. Yep. And our feminist recap, what would you say? Oh, I would say it's definitely like supporter. Like, yeah. She's strong. She doesn't back down. He supports her. He's in there to help lift her up. He never thinks less of her. He instantly kind of has some small admiration for her from the Mm -hmm. moment he speaks to her. And that kind of grows. And I just love that she never backs down. And, you know, she has the support of her sister. And even though her sister says some things that are kind of not so feminist supporting but I think that's in line with Freddie's character in like the trauma she's faced so she's dealing with Freddie deals with her trauma and her agoraphobia because she's just like Serena has to deal with that but I think that she lives to support her sister but also lives to support herself so I think we talked about it as a supporter earlier where we were saying like yes he punched the duke and yes he threatened the duke but he did those things to achieve Serena's desires like he didn't He didn't rescue her like a damsel in distress. I mean, yes, he married her and yes, he, you know, did all those sorts of things. But there were so many layers to that. And it wasn't like, oh, I'll just marry this girl to do this good thing. It was there was there was so much more to that, you know. And Mm -hmm. oh, my God, like the stick on the bench and the pins. Those little moment. Um, the stick on the bench just really he just was like here's this tiny twig like this is and i just like yeah. in my head i don't even imagine it as being like a full twig like maybe a foot long i literally imagine it as like a two inch little piece yep. of like twig that's just like bloop like you could just like brush it aside so easily and yet like he's like there's the wall <sighs> oh my god and and the walking stick but all of those things he gave them to her to give her power and we see her transformation, right? But Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the book, she is strong and she's only getting stronger. So what we're seeing is someone, a survivor of rape, growing and moving forward and making her own decisions and taking her body back into her own hands. And so that is why I think that this is a supporter too. So very, very happy with this book in general. Yes, I was very happy with it. I usually feel like I want more from a novella. And you know what? I think I got everything I needed out of it. I think that leads us perfectly into our book overall rating. What would you rate this book? I'm going to rate this like a nine. Like I really liked it. I thought it had a good plot. I thought it had 
good elements. I thought it had conflict. I thought it had resolution. I thought that the characters were good, you know, and I think uh, maybe it would have changed had it been a full-length novel, but for me, I'm like, okay, it's a nine. So I think that's great, and for all of the reasons that you just said, I am going to rate it a 10 because I don't think I've read a better novella. I don't think I could want anything else from this book. So I feel like it deserves a 10 from me. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a lot of positive ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a side note, all of the things that you said about Freddie um, and maybe her being like less feminist and such. Oh, boy, do they get addressed in book four. So <laughs> excellent. I'm excited. I yeah, I ex- I'm excited for you to read this series. And I recommend to everybody out there to read them. And I look so forward to talking about Minnie and Jane and Violet and Free and Oliver and Edward. And oh, God, what's the other one? Oh, God, uh, Robert There's and so Sebastian. Many names. I can't wait There's to so talk many about names. them all. So many names. <laughs> I remember them all. I'm pretty sure Edward is is book four. And if he's not, I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> anyhow, so with that, though, we aren't reading that next time. No, sadly. we're not. We like to just like dangled carrots in front of you and then rip them away. Um, <laughs> next time we will be heading back. Hi there, guys. Uh, Zoe breaking in here because Kelsey and I recorded the wrong book that we're reading next time. And I don't really know how we did that. But I thought I would just re-record a little bit to tell you what we're actually doing. So we have a really, really cool episode coming up for you guys. In fact, it's our first interview. We sat down with best-selling author Maya Rodale to talk to her about her book called Dangerous Books for Girls. Now, you might know Maya from her historical romances like the Keeping Up with the Cavendishes series or her Wallflower series or maybe her contemporary romances, but this book is really cool because it is all about the bad reputation of romance novels explained. So we talked about that with Maya and it's actually coming out in one week on October 24th. So you don't have long to wait. And in the meantime, I highly recommend you pick up that book. It's great, but I'm not going to talk more about it here. I'm going to just compel you hopefully to buy it and to read it and to listen in next week as we talk to author Maya Rodale about her book, Dangerous Books for Girls. Bye. See you next time. But about her, before she started writing historical romance, she got a graduate degree in... Hold on a second. Uh, Not right now. Hold on a second. Yes. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Wrong one. Thank you. Damn. Oh, well... The perils of a hotel room. What's the what's the phobia when you're afraid to leave the house? Angoraphobia? No, that's different. That's like fear of sweaters or something. I can Google it. Fear okay. of <laughs> sweaters. <laughs>
fear of leaving the house is agoraphobia. You got it. Agoraphobia. But I was thinking, I said angora, which definitely is like a sweater <laughs> material. So it's agoraphobia. Yes. Yeah. 